Between my junior and senior years in high school, I experienced one of probably the greater highlights uh, of my young life. My father signed me up to attend a camp. It was the Capital Classic Basketball Camp. It was located just south of the D.C. area in Fairfax, Virginia. I didn't know very much about it, but as I began to make my way there, my dad informed me that some of the best basketball players up and down the East Coast were going to be at this particular camp. I wish he hadn't told me that because I was really nervous. Um, if you don't play basketball, I'll explain to you my position was point guard. And uh, simply put, a point guard on a basketball team is like a quarterback to a football team. He's the one that gets the team into the offense. He's the one that primarily dribbles the ball. He has a lot of responsibility in that particular aspect. And I was really nervous because as I arrived, I saw a lot of guys that were about 6'8 and 6'9 that were athletic. And I saw a lot of guys my size that looked uh, very athletic, borrowing from Dorothy's statement when she saw the glitter of, of, of the world she was in to Toto. We're not in Kansas anymore. I realized that. But my nervousness gave way to excitement when I realized that Tommy Amaker was going to be on my team. And there were six teams at the camp, and you got there, the teams were divided. And, and uh, you may not know Tommy Amaker. I believe he's currently the head coach at Harvard University. But at that time, he was the number one point guard in the entire nation. Everyone wanted him, and he was on my team. And uh, uh, there was a young coach there, by the name of Mike Chachevsky. Not many people had heard about him, but he was seated about as close as my wife to me uh, from where we were playing ball. But his eyes were not on me. His eyes were on Tommy Amaker. Tommy Amaker was going to be there half of the week, and after that half of the week, he was going to go to another elite camp, five-star camp. And guess what? When Tommy left, Coach Chachevsky left. But the one problem I had in the midst of all my excitements, there were two point guards on our team, and there's only one position at point guard. And I remember the first time we practiced, and here I am from little podunk Appomattox, and, and if you've ever played basketball, when a practice usually the, begins, the point guard initiates everything. And guess what I did? I took the ball, I handed it to Tommy Amica, and I walked over to the side, and I deferred to him. And boy, he was amazing. It was like everything he did was fluid motion. He was a great leader and still is a great leader. But I had to acknowledge his superiority over me. Everyone else knew it. I had to come to my own realization, and believe me, it did not take very long. Today, we're going to look at one of the greatest Christological passages in all of the Bible. And by that, I mean a passage that depicts to us the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw last week in Revelation chapter 5 how the host of heavenly beings acknowledged the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he alone was worthy. But as we come today and we look at some direct teaching from the book of Colossians, 
Every single one of us individually is called to acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to sort of set down ourselves to the side and esteem him as Lord overall. And so I want you to look with me today at Colossians chapter 1 as we see the description of this one who's worthy of our praise, who's greater than we are. Beginning in verse 15, Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let us pray. Father, as we look at this amazing passage of Scripture and as, Lord, we read what Paul had to say about our exalted Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord, there's no doubt in my mind that there's none like Jesus. Lord, we defer to you today. Father, as we open your word today, there may be some who have never given control of their lives to you. Maybe even the thought of that is humbling. But Father, you're worthy because you are above, beyond, before us. And we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You know, the context for uh, this particular book was this. Colossians was written by Paul. It was written to the church in Colossae. And the church in Colossae was made up of a mixture of people, some Jews, as we see uh, some of the things that were addressed here in Colossians, and some of them were Gentiles. Paul did not start the church at Colossae, but he had a great interest in the church. Most people believe a man named Epaphras, who was mentored, toward by Paul and who was a friend uh, of Paul's actually started the church in Colossae. But as can happen in certain churches at certain times, this church that had a great beginning began to be threatened from within. Uh, It began to be influenced or potentially influenced by wrong teachings. And one of the wrong teachings was this. It's centered around the person of Jesus Christ. The damaging influence of these so-called teachers was that they tried to bring down Christ and to lift up other created beings. In doing so, they were elevating angels. In fact, in chapter 2 and verse 18 of Colossians, um, Paul warns, among other things, about this wrongful worship of angels. And so, in effect, what uh, the church or certain individuals in the church there uh, were trying to do was this. They were bringing down Christ as not God in the flesh, but just an emanation or an extension separate from God. And as they were doing so, they were lifting up the angels to his position. Paul says 
That's wrong. In fact, he writes in great part here to address this wrong teaching. And in the midst of this book, we find this great passage describing Christ. And, and Paul says that Jesus is above, over, beyond, prior to any part of creation. And that includes not just the creation that we see, even principalities, even the angelic realm, even the spectacular things we may not see with our eyes. So in this great passage, we can gain, if we had no other part of the scripture, which I'm glad we have, but we could develop a doctrine or a belief about Jesus Christ based solely on these few verses. And I want to note three areas this morning in which Jesus' supremacy is conveyed here. First, Paul asserts, and this is extremely important, the deity of Jesus Christ. Look at the beginning of verse 15. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Now, right now, you don't see God with your eyes. He is a spirit being, but God became flesh in the person, Jesus Christ. And it says here that Jesus is the image of God whom we don't see. And then in verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That is Jesus. Now, during the past couple of months, we have emphasized the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. We've understood that as the creator, he's not subject to the laws of creation. In other words, I'm a part of creation. I can't be two in one. I'm one. I'm who I am. But God as the creator is not subject to such laws. Jesus is fully God and fully man. We've understood that in our studies in the past few weeks during the 11 o'clock hour here and at the uh, main church and also during the Sunday school hour. During our look at the I am sayings back in the months of uh, October and November, you may remember that the very first passage uh, that we looked at was John 8, 58, when Jesus talking to religious leaders said, before, Jesus, uh, before Abraham was, I am. Now, not only was he saying a miracle and that he predated Abraham, which that in and of itself was an amazing miracle because Abraham had lived hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But, but Jesus also was equating himself with the Father. He used specifically that term, I am, which was the term that God used, God the Father used to describe himself to Moses in the book of Exodus. And so what he is saying here is that he is God. And then two weeks ago in our Sunday school lesson, we noted uh, that Isaiah mentioned that a child would be born to a virgin some 700 plus years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem and his name would be what? Emmanuel, God with us. And so it should not surprise us in this central Christological, again, central passage that deals with the nature of Jesus Christ. It shouldn't surprise us that Paul speaks of the truth that Jesus is God. In fact, he says in verse 19, God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. In, in chapter uh, 2 and verse 9, we see that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He repeats it there. And then in verse 15, he says he is the image of the invisible God. 
Jesus is more than a prophet, although he issued prophecy. Jesus is more than a priest, although Hebrews tells us that he's our great high priest. He's more than a great teacher, and he corrected the one who addressed him such. He was more than a morally upright being. He is fully God. He is uh, the image of the invisible God. He he is an icon. That's what it speaks of. That, that's the Greek word there, which is a visible manifestation, Jesus was, of deity. So to worship and render worship to anything other than Jesus is wrong. In fact, it's anathema. But I want you to see a second truth. Paul doesn't only assert the deity of Jesus, but he asserts Jesus' superiority over all that is created. Notice what he says in the latter part of verse 15, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation or over all creation, your translation may say. People will say, aha, firstborn. That proves that Jesus was born and could not be God. Well, simply put, that's a wrong understanding of Scripture. Years ago, I read a book written by a man named David Reed. David Reed was a former elder in the group that is called the Jehovah's Witness. But David Reed was converted to Christianity, and he began to study words like firstborn and what they meant. And he noted that the term firstborn could have one of two meanings. It could speak to first in order of birth, like my older brother John is firstborn. He was in time born before I was. But Reed also argues, and this is important as we seek to understand verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1, that firstborn can also mean precedence in rank or superior position. Now, a quick study reveals this second aspect, especially in the Old Testament. We see it. You may remember Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first, but through deception, uh, Jacob uh, gained the birthright and the blessing. And so though, even though Esau was born first, Jacob, born later, was declared the firstborn. He was given the exalted uh, position. Also, you may remember Manasseh and Ephraim who were born to Joseph in the land of Egypt and how their granddaughter Jacob sought to bless them before he died. And, and what happened was Joseph wanted Manasseh, who was the firstborn, uh, to be receiving the firstborn blessing and Ephraim uh, to receive a blessing, but not that. But you may remember that account that Jacob switched the hands that were under his thigh. And as a result of that, he placed uh, Ephraim above Manasseh. But then we read in Psalm chapter 89, and, and David Reed mentions this, and it's important to know. But all of Psalm chapter 89 speaks of David, King David. And in its entirety, we read in verse 27, God says, I will appoint him, that is David, my firstborn, comma, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Now, as we begin to look at this verse, and Reed explains it so clearly, David was not the firstborn son of Jesse. In fact, he was the latter-born son 
of Jesse. So he wasn't even the first in his own household, but God says, I'll appoint him my firstborn. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. This is order of birth, but it doesn't have to do with order of birth because what does he say? The most exalted of the kings of the earth. In other words, if I were to describe myself to you, I would say I'm Rick Caldwell, comma, pastor of Concord Baptist Church, and that would describe what I, who I am. And so when he says uh, the firstborn, comma, the most exalted of the kings of the earth, what he means is he's the one who has precedence over all. And so as firstborn over all creation, Jesus here in Colossians 1, he's exalted over all that is created. And this speaks right to the heart of the issue that Paul was dealing with there. Those who were worshiping angels. You know, the Magi had it right. Even as the young child, their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they were appropriate for one who was worthy of worship. Well, Paul continues in verse 16, for everything was created by Jesus in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. In other words, he's encapsulating in all of that, not just what we see, not just the trees, the plants, not just other human beings, but even principalities, even dominions, even rulers, even the angelic beings, all of those must defer to Christ because they were created by him. And not only were they created by him, but it says all things have been created through him and also for him. And so as we look at all of these prepositions created by him, created through him, created for him, we stop at the last one. And we have to understand you and I were created for God's glory through Jesus Christ. Do you realize today that you were created for him? Now, I know we've got a lot of busyness going on in these days ahead, and I'll confess I'm right there with you. There are a lot of presents to wrap, a lot of cards to send, a lot of meals to fix. Don't worry, I won't be doing that. There's a lot that's going on. And if we're not careful, we become consumed in our own life as if we were created for us. But as we look at this passage, the Bible says that you are created for God's glory. And for us to live a life in perfect peace, for us to live a life that is in right order, it's essential that we get this truth down, that we're created for Christ. Years ago, I shared my testimony. I accepted Christ as a child, but as a college student, I did not have Christ really at the center of what I was doing. You know who God used in my life? A group of Christians on campus. I saw something different in them. I saw something that was desirable in them. I knew what that was, but I was not experiencing it. And why was that peace there with them? Because they understood they were created for God's glory. I wonder how you're doing in this in your life. But he goes on in verse 17. He says that Jesus is before all things, and by him all things hold together. In other words, he sustains us. He's not a God who winds up the clock and leaves it on its own to operate. No, He's intricately involved in every part of history. You awaken today. That's by the grace of God through Jesus. You'll go to bed tonight. 
There's nothing in us that programs us. We are created by and for him, and he sustains us. He is the one who holds all things together. You're in his hands. He is over you. Whatever you experience is under his control. What a Savior we have. But then thirdly, we see that Paul asserts Jesus' authority over the church. That is the new creation. You know, there's a lot of debate in certain circles in churches today. There's this argument, and it's a wrong argument. They say, well, is this a pastor-led church or is it a lay-led church? I don't know about you. I don't want to be in a pastor-led church. I don't want to be in a lay-led church. I've shared before, if I were to die this week, this church would meet next Sunday. Now, I don't know if it would be Bob preaching or Brian preaching or Kemper or John or who, but we would have somebody here that would fill this pulpit next week. I'm not essential to the church. There are not any laypersons who are essential to the church. There's one who is essential who gives life. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that we just do what we want, that they're not under shepherds, that the pastor's given that responsibility. There are lay leaders that are given responsibility to provide leadership, but there's only one head of the church. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, my favorite pastor who passed away in around 2006 or 2007 was Dr. Adrian Rogers, and he said this truth. He said, anything with two heads is a freak, and anything with no head is dead. There's only one head, and there's one head, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. As the head of the church, he is authoritative over the church. We must seek his glory. We must seek his will. As the head of the church, he instructs the church, even as the brain instructs the body what to do. As the head of the church, he has many members who operate for him and for his purposes. These are exciting days of opportunity for the church of the living Lord. For us as an individual church, there are lots of opportunities in 2022. But we must be Christ-led. We must be Christ-directed. What does God desire in his church here? He desires us to be a ministering church. What does he desire through his church? That we lift him up through the study of his word, through ministry, through praise. What does he desire for his church? That we become like he is. Now, verse 18, as we move on, says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, this is the second time firstborn is used. Earlier, we saw firstborn over all creation. We noted how that means he's exalted, he precedes all. But what does this mean? firstborn from the dead. As I began to study it more and more, it is very closely tied to the first part of verse 18, which speaks of his relationship to the church. Well, I want to just sit down for maybe two minutes on this verse, and then uh, we'll, we'll close after that. But I appeal to you, others were raised before Jesus was. We looked at Lazarus when we studied I am the resurrection and the life. Before Jesus' resurrection, while he was here on this earth, Jesus did what? Raised him from the dead. My favorite Old Testament character was Elisha. Great 
personal study to go through. Amazing miracles. Elisha, that is not Elijah with the J, but Elisha with the S-H. And when Elisha died, they buried his body. And it says right after that in the narrative that one day uh, some men were being raided by a party and they tried to dig a shallow grave because a man had died. And they said when they put that body in the grave, it touched Elisha's bones and the guy raised up like that. I don't know about you, but if I'd seen that, I would have known what to think. He was raised. Do you realize that upon Jesus' death, there was a quake in the holy city? And the scripture says that saints rose up and walked among the streets. These are amazing things, but they're not Jesus. They were resuscitation. I don't know about you, but I haven't heard it reported anywhere. Lazarus is on earth right now. And and I, I don't think that guy, I know that guy that touched Elisha's bones, he's not alive. Those that were raised up and walked throughout the holy city, they all died again. It was more of a resuscitation. Jesus, though, arose never to die again. That is the resurrection. And so while others were raised from the dead, only Jesus is raised eternally to life. But the second truth of this is this. Others will be resurrected as Jesus. If you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a bright and glorious future because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead says that you too, if you will trust in him, will at that end time be raised. It tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the dead in Christ will be raised. Do you have the assurance that you know Jesus Christ, that you've trusted him? Do you have the assurance that should something happen to you, you'll be raised to live forever? In Christ, you can have that. But then the third thing, and this ties closely to verse 18, the first part of the verse, says, our resurrected Lord, he brings not just physical life and will bring, but he brings spiritual life. Will Christian be ra- Christians be raised to life eternal? Certainly, in our future but also as the firstborn from the dead, Jesus gives spiritual life that moment a person would believe on him. Listen to this verse. Romans 6, 4 says, Just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we may too walk in newness of life, and it's understood right now. In other words, you can go from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. You can go from spiritual death to spiritual life by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if you've done that in your life. If not, what a day to do it. To say, Lord, I'm tired of fighting this life, trying to run it myself. Lord, I yield to you. Here it is, just as I did with that uh, young man years ago at that camp. Here it is, Lord, I just give my life to you. What I've tried to do myself, I defer to you. You take it. I need you in my life. You know, a few weeks ago, I was reading an entry in A.W. Tozer's devotion, My Daily Pursuit. And I like how Tozer describes the Lord Jesus. He speaks of his otherness. And the point that he made in that particular day's entry is that Jesus is not just the greatest. He's beyond greatness. 
because often when we use the term great, it's a comparative term that we compare one human to another human. He said, Jesus is other than that, greater than that. You see, I can see someone who plays basketball better than I, and I can hand that ball to him, but guess what? He's a human being just like I am. As great as he is, he won't live perfectly. He'll mess up. He'll throw the ball to the other team. I can hand over the tools in the kitchen for someone else to cook who's a great cook, but guess what? They may forget and burn things. I, I can yield the, the, the platform to somebody who's an eloquent speaker, but I guarantee over time they'll speak incorrectly, grammatically at some point. But the one we're called to serve, the Lord Jesus Christ, is sinless, perfect, worthy of praise, distinct from us, greater in any capacity than we could ever imagine. The last verse of our text tells us what Jesus has done for you. Through him, that is Jesus, God worked to reconcile everything to himself, to make right wrongs. God took upon himself your sin to make right your wrong, and he did it through Jesus Christ. Whether things on heaven, things on earth, what it says, that Jesus, that God made peace through the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. That tells us as great as Jesus is, he died for you. Wouldn't it have been unusual for me to have handed that basketball over to that guy and then that guy had been all about me back years ago? We, we, we would think that's strange. Yet God calls you to yield your life to him, but he's not taking that ball and doing whatever. He's pouring back into you, and he's living in and through you. In other words, when you live for God's glory, you're the one to gain. You're the one who gains. God is glorified, and you're the better for it. What a deal. What a Savior we serve. Wouldn't you trust him today? Wouldn't you come to the end of yourself and say, Lord, I hand it over to you. Let's pray. Father, as we looked at your word today, words betray us to express your magnificence. Lord, you are different from us, greater than us, over us. We are made by you, through you, and for you. And Lord, we need to come to the realization in our lives that we're to live our lives for your glory. And when that part gets right, Lord, the peace and the blessing and the fruit will abound. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And Lord, if there be any here today who have yet to trust him, I pray today would be the day. In Jesus' name, amen.